minimalists. <laughs> so Ken and I, we were just talking about a family member who um, has been handed everything their whole life. Yeah. And I won't like say which family member yeah. it was. Right. I'm sure that they are not a patron. <laughs> right. I right. can double check for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. What's up, patrons? Yeah, so uh, we... Ken, we, we're here with Ken Coleman. We, we start with... Um, uh, author of the the proximity principle by the way ken thank you for being here on on the show yeah um we start this segment with a little something called more about less where we we read something i've got two things i want to read i want to read a little excerpt from your book okay. here and uh, then i've got something from seth godin i want to read this just, this just came out yesterday but it was so on point with what we're talking about today so here's a little section from your book about limiting beliefs the first step in overcoming the limiting beliefs that are holding you back is to identify them on the path to your dream job there are two major limiting beliefs that stand in your way pride and fear let's take a look, closer look at uh, at these and talk about how to recognize these lies. I'm going to just cover the, the pride thing real quick. Pride shows up in the lie that we are self-sufficient. So we were just talking about that a moment ago. Like, all oh, my successes are my fault and all the failures are yours. Mm. That we don't need others. That it's weak to rely on others for help and guidance. It also shows up in worrying about how others perceive us. Mm. Ironically, pride keeps us from being ambitious. It is ridiculous. It'd be ridiculous if it wasn't so powerful. Take Steve Jobs, for instance. Imagine Jobs without ambition. It's impossible, right? I mean, you can't create the iPhone and build a multi-billion-dollar company with without just a little ambition. Arguably, Jobs was one of the most innovative and successful people on the planet, but he didn't get there by being self-sufficient. We, that's funny because we often think of Apple and Steve Jobs like it was a one-man operation. Mm. Of course it wasn't, right? Uh, no, he took a much different approach. At an early age, Jobs learned the value of asking for help. When he was just 12 years old, Jobs called up Bill Hewitt, yep, the Hewlett-Packard co-founder, to ask for spare parts for a project he was working on. And Bill said yes to a 12-year-old kid. It's incredible. Yeah, and and so so we think of like any of these these larger than life magnets uh, of it, titans of industry is like uh, a one man show, but it's not that at all. Well, yeah. we all know the story. If there's no was, there's no jobs, because yeah. Jobs did have the ideas. But remember, if you if you've read the Isaacson biography on Jobs, which it's fascinating, uh, Jobs was not actually that technically savvy. I mean, he, he, he understood the user experience. He was a great futurist. He was really, I believe, one of the first popular futurists, you know, mm. not futurist by trade, but that's just where the guy's head was all the time. But it was Waz who did all the building of the parts and the programming. And, and then after Waz would build something in that garage, you know, Jobs would go, ah, it's missing this. It's not doing this. So he was able to to uh, identify what it wasn't doing, what it should be doing, but he relied on Waz. Yeah. And then, of course, many other engineers as the company took off. I, I revealed that story in the book, be, and, and it's a subtle thing. And so I want to point out why I told the story for 12-year-old jobs. Because that's what we as adults lose so mm. quickly, is the innocence of our youth. And the innocence of our youth in this particular thing is a 12-year-old who's just dumb enough to ask. Mm -hmm. What we mean by dumb is not unintelligent, just 
Hey, he's not worried about a no. Right. He's not worried. My six-year-old daughter, she will ask everything. Everything and for anything. Mm -hmm. There is an innocence there. It's not a a grabby mentality. It's a, hey, I need this. I'm going to ask. And that's what 12-year-olds do. It's what 22-year-olds ought to do. Right. what 32-year-olds ought to do. Do you know Lewis Howes? Of course. Yeah, so he, he, I'm thinking of him because I, I, I look at him as a world-class mentee. He's been on our podcast at least once, maybe twice, um, and he he is always asking these questions that are innocent and childlike, without any, uh, without ever being embarrassed. He's like, "Hey, so tell me how you did that with, with the documentary. How did you?" Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, "Okay, like I'm happy to answer that because he has the childlike curiosity, mm-hmm. and, and he doesn't. It doesn't feel like he's bothering me. In fact, it's even better than childlike curiosity because at some point, my daughter, you know, she's six, and I'm like, "Okay, I don't know why." figs grow you know, or whatever like <laughs> I, I, stop asking me why but like with someone like lewis he's doing this so he's asking questions constantly but right. also in a measured way and he's paying attention to it that's actually that's the one thing that drives you crazy about a six-year-old is right. like you'll, you'll give them the why and they're like yeah okay they'll, they'll run off and like right. they don't like the explanation right. well mm-hmm. they have the attention span of a gnat right you know so <laughs> they, they really do want to know why but it, but then again there's another why in the middle of how you're answering the current why right but what what lewis has done a great job of and yeah i have the privilege to know lewis is lewis swallows his pride in those situations mm-hmm. he's not worried about coming across like oh you're lewis house and you're asking me how to do it uh, that's just nonsense. You know, the great men and women of this world who do great things, they're, they're continual learners. They're lifelong learners. And um, if I might, I want to I touch on something you said. This is something new that I'm, I'm really jazzed about, and it came to me uh, recently. And you said childlike curiosity, but there's a colloquialism, a common phrase, childlike wonder. Mm. Okay? And the word wonder is so powerful. It moves me deeply. So let's talk about wonder. So there's a childlike wonder in all of us. We all uh, come into this world hardwired to ask hundreds of questions a day. We know this from research that toddlers will ask hundreds of questions a day. In my first book, One Question, we pulled some research from the University of Michigan that said, by the time the average American reaches eighth grade, they're only asking one to two questions a day. Hmm. Now you juxtapose that with the natural born curiosity that is that is ingrained in us and designed and put into us what's going on there well so i want to play this out so when a human being enters into the world right we've got this season of life and let's just call it from day one uh and until maybe you know 12 years old there's a lot of wonder right just tons of wonder you're it's like this big exploration i wonder about this i wonder about that and then i experience wonder whoa that's amazing right now then you go into adolescence right and we know this is true from the research i just shared so now the eighth grade is like 13 14 years of age now what's happening is we've got cultural societal pressure coming from mom and dad who love us but there's pressure that's pouring in on mom and dad and so now we're starting to worry about, well, next year your grades count and it goes on your record and you mm. got to have good grades so you can get to a good school so you can get a good job, right? Yeah. And so what happens is the wonder begins to leak out of us mm. because it the pressure, it's like an air mattress or those insidious floats I have to fill up every year for my kids at the pool. And then come fall, I'm in the garage like an idiot laying on top of these floats <laughs> and what am I doing? 
I am applying pressure and pushing the air out of these floats. This is what society and our Western culture for sure does to all of us, right? Mm. Because then as I get into the 10th, 11th grade, right? Now it's all about grades, GPA, uh, test scores, SAT, ACT to get into the good school. Now there's this pressure coming. And there's additional pressure from your peers as well. Of course. You, you don't, and especially you want to feel cool around them. You want to feel as though you, know, you, you fit in. And the best way to fit in is to not stand out. That's it. So I'm going to, I got to get a good school and I got to say that I'm going to go do this. So here's what happens. The wonder completely gets pressed out of us. I mean, it's just, it's barely in there. But it's in there. Yeah. But it gets it gets pressed out of us. Now here's what happens. So then we send these kids off to a college they can't afford for a degree that they don't want. And now we're seeing a degree that they can't even use, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So now they get out and they're in their early 20s and mid-20s. Uh-oh, now watch what's happened. No longer are we wondering, we're wandering. Mm. And we go from wandering to wandering. And so we're wandering into the safest job possible that allows me to have all the stuff that I don't need, can't afford. Yeah. I'm keeping up with the Joneses. Everything is about the good paying job, which allows me to have all of the accoutrements and things that makes me look successful and helps salve my feelings of desperation that are now growing in my 20s and 30s. And now you're calling the Ken Coleman Show. Ken, help me. I don't know what I want to do with my life, or I know what I want to do, but I know how to get there. Mm-hmm. And I just fell into all this. Well, of course you did, because society is pushing you down the super highway of wandering. Mm. Right, because success is defined by one thing: dollar signs. Yeah. Do you have enough dollars to have all the stuff that everybody else has? This is your world now. And, and now it's not even dollars; it is the appearance of dollars. That's my right? point. Right. And, and we we live in in Los Angeles now, and yeah. and it is the land of triple decker strip malls yeah. and and Lamborghinis and Rodeo Drive. Yeah. yeah. And and as we as we try to navigate around, it's like, well, of course I should have what everyone else has. I uh, I. I stand out by not fitting in by having debt, which is an odd thing, right? It's like all of a sudden, in order for me to just fit in, I have to take on six figures worth of debt. That's right. And it's by the way, it's it's purchasing a lifestyle that isn't bringing me contentment, joy, satisfaction. Doesn't answer any of the significance questions. So so I'll land the plane here. So this is so society's driving us to this path of wandering. I'm over here waving my hands going, come down this narrow path of wondering and wonder, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Mm. What am I good at? What, what makes my heart sing when I'm engaged in it? What's my unique contribution to this world? And, and I stay in that, and I'm wondering what's next, even when I'm in a role that I love. I'm in my dream job right now, but I'm still wondering, what's next? Mm. How many more people can I touch? How do I touch them? Where do I touch them? What do they need? How can I grow? So this is all the way back to, again, pride. Pride takes us down the path of wandering. If we swallow our pride, we're going to remain wonders. The kid who wakes up on Christmas morning who can't wait to race down the stairs, tear open the Christmas present, and just be, <sighs> and that's what life should be lived like. What's today going to offer me to do, to contribute to my fellow man? That's, a, that's, that's a wondering. To be, able to, to be able to ask that as opposed to, what do I have to do today? Yeah. 
what do I get to do today? That subtle reframing is a world of difference, yeah. right? What, what do I get to do today? Now, you were speaking about Steve Jobs a moment ago, and obviously he, his 12-year-old self didn't have the pride of, what, are the, what is someone going to think of me, right? <laughs> and then you talked about, about Jobs and, and, and uh, founding the company um, with, with Waz, uh, and he, well, this it really reminded me of this article with uh, that Seth Godin wrote. It's called the relationship with the customer, but it really is, it goes way beyond that. It's really something that it's about hard work versus important work. And so I'm going to read this really quick and I'd love to get your take on it, Ken. If you've ever bought a mattress online or a private label product from Amazon, you've experienced the value created by the last step. That mattress company didn't make the mattress and Amazon doesn't make light bulbs. There are countless factories vying to sell generic products to the companies that own the customer relationship. Perhaps 90%, sometimes 100% of the profit goes to companies that make the sale, not the ones who actually made the product. That's because while they, while they make the thing, they don't do the work. The hard part is earning attention and trust. The hard part is helping someone make the choice. There's a difference between the hard part and the important part. Without the factory, there's nothing to sell. Making it, making it is important, but increasingly, it's not the hard part. And so uh, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. You can read the rest of it. It, it goes on a little bit farther. But, but Ken, when we're talking about Steve Jobs, like he was sort of doing the hard part, but not necessarily the important part. He wasn't. He wasn't. You know, he wasn't building the thing. But the hard part was communicating the vision with the rest of the world, because there are plenty of people who were capable of sort of building uh, an iPhone equivalent, and we see a lot of them now. But he was the one who, who really did the hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Seth is brilliant. Uh, that is brilliant. And the thought that came to my mind just off the top of my head was that this applies to all of us as we look at our unique calling. So let's look at the example, the metaphor that he gave us here. So the important part um, is showing up and being you, uniquely you. But the hard part, right, is selling that message, that vision, that mission that you were created to fill, to mm. do. And so that's what that's the that's the metaphor, certainly in my world. You know, it's it, it's important for us all to be who we are, but the hard part is staying with it long enough to see our opportunity to get on the ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I take away from that. And well, it's very similar, right? The, the the important part, like when you write a book like this, the, the important part is actually um, writing the book, right? It, yeah. But but the hard part is like getting it in front of an audience now that's because right. you can write the book and it can be in a drawer somewhere right. and no that's one ever it. reads it. That's it. You still have to do the hard work yeah. of, of you know going on podcasts, that's radio right. shows and all the, the, these other things because otherwise it's not going to connect with no, anyone. No, you've got to keep showing up. Yeah. And, and let's go back a little bit. Before there was a book, before there's the Ken Coleman show, uh, the important work was getting really clear on what I was created to do, and that was that was the why, that was the purpose, and then the purpose informs the vision. Where do I want to go? What's that thirty-year, big, hairy, audacious goal, as Jim Collins so beautifully called it in Good to Great? Yeah. And so that's the where, but then the how is the mission. How am I going to get there? And so that's the important work behind the scenes, getting really clear on why you're here, 
where you want to go, how you believe you're best going to get there. So you're talking about purpose, vision, mission. Most human beings don't ever have those statements really thought out and really clear. That's the important work. But the hard work is then, right, building uh, a job, a career around mm-hmm. that, and staying with it long enough for it to monetize. Mm. That's the hard work. And then the same thing that Seth's talking about, you can create a podcast. Uh, that's important. Yeah. The hard work is showing up and keep doing it until you get 5,000 people listening. Right. And then maybe 10 and maybe 15, right? Yeah. Uh, I read some data recently. A guy did a bunch of research on podcasts. You wouldn't believe, well, you guys would, <laughs> but the majority of podcasts out there die off they're still out there because they don't get deleted but they're right. they're dormant right. after about 90 days oh wow why because of what seth's talking about people stop showing up well it's important you did the important work you started something you got something you wanted to say but you didn't do the hard work you didn't right. stay with it yeah. yeah you didn't figure out who the audience is where are they what do they most need you know and and, I'm, and again i'm going to step on some toes here the important work for every person, certainly if you want to put some content out or put a product out, is what moves you. What moves you? Simon Cow, I read a biography on Simon Cow, and all we see is Simon, you know, universal success, big shot, mm-hmm. hit maker. Well, what most people don't know is he was a just total disaster of a record executive early on in his career. Couldn't get a hit. Mm. Was about ready to lose his job. Because in that industry, you got to find a band who's going to sell records, right? You can't just keep getting you know, a check to go fund somebody, go do a record, and it doesn't sell. He's about ready to lose his job, and he's at, his, at the end of his rope. And he made the decision, I'll never forget reading this. He said, I'm never going to produce another band that I wouldn't personally want to listen to. I wouldn't personally want to go to their concert. And after that, you'll laugh at this. You music purists will hate this, but there's great truth in this. He goes and finds the Spice Girls. They blow up. <laughs> right. What is he known for? Boy bands, girl bands. Like that's what he's known for, ensembles. Now that may not be your cup of tea, but guess what? The facts don't lie. Yeah. There's millions and millions of people in the world who like that kind of music, but he produced something that he liked. Turns out with 6 billion plus people on the planet, there's a lot of people out there who like the things that we like. Yeah. You guys are a perfect example of that. You put out content, you come up with strategies and things that personally mean something to you. They move you, they've changed your life. You believe they'll change other people's lives. And so you went after that. It turns out a lot of people were attracted to that message. So I wanna point out just a little tip on this important part of developing your product, your service, or your message. It better move you. Yeah. Because if it doesn't move you, so if your podcast doesn't interest you, I got news for you. You're just flailing away. You don't even know who you are. Therefore, an audience isn't who you are, and you can't attract people yeah, that are like-minded. Not, if you would not listen to your own podcast, you're probably making the wrong podcast. If you wouldn't read your own book, you're probably writing the wrong book. Let's talk a little bit about the the five types of people who can help. Yeah. Well, you, I'll just list them and then let you go where you want to go. Yeah, let's do so it. So we've, uh, we've got the professor. And quick description, the professor is somebody who can teach me the fundamentals of what I need to learn and do to be qualified, 
right? Uh, and they can't just teach it to me. It's not just a knowledge factor. They want to teach you. So it doesn't have to be a college professor. Right. It's just somebody who can teach you the, the tricks of the trade, if you will. Uh, then you got the producer. The producer is somebody who is identified by being very successful in the field trade that you want to be in. They're winning, okay? And they're probably, and they're local in this usage of the book. They're local, meaning they're in your zip code. Uh, you have access to them. Then we go to the professional. Uh, these are people that are at the very top of the industry or trade that you want to be in. They're not necessarily local, and they're certainly probably not accessible. I can break these down a little bit further, but the professional is somebody that I'm learning from on YouTube or a podcast or a webinar or their book. Mm. I mean, I get coffee with them, but I can certainly emulate them and learn from them. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the peer. And we've already kind of talked about the value of the peer, but the peer is, this is the intentional person in your life. These are professional peers and personal peers. And you're being very selective of who you're spending time with, who's rubbing off on you, and who are you, know, who are you running with. If I'm running to train for a marathon, which I did last year, I want to train with somebody who's a better runner than me. Why? Because when I'm running with them, they're setting the pace. They're pulling me in. That's what we're talking about with the peer. And then finally, the mentor. This is the sage. Uh, this is a man or a woman who's older than you. They've got more experience in life. They're very successful. Does not have to be the same industry. Uh, but they know you well enough to care for you and tell you the truth and hold you accountable. So those are the five people. I want to talk a little bit about about uh, peers, and you talk about how peers have have shared values to you. Yeah. And I think that's something that's that's important. And and I just want to differentiate. It doesn't mean they have the same exact beliefs of you yes. as you. It doesn't mean they like the same TV shows that's as key. you. Yeah. It, it means that you have the same sort of core values or foundational values, and 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 the reason being is as you're as you're growing, as you're shaping yourself, well, you you need to have a sort of model by which to 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 shape yourself. Yeah, I'm so glad you actually brought up a distinction here. It does not have to be somebody who who agrees with you on political or religious or other things. It doesn't have to be, you know, like we're all, if you threw a hula hoop around us, people would say we're basically the same person, just slightly different DNA. I'm glad you brought that up because what we're looking for when we say values is, is, is this. I don't have to agree with them on everything, but what I want to have like values in are things like that matter to me. For instance, family. I, do they value their family, right? Are they mm. doing their best to be a good husband and a really good dad? Like, so so I'm, I want to hang around with dudes that that's a value because mm-hmm. I don't want to be hanging out with a dude who's saying things and doing things that aren't those two things. Mm. Right. Yep. Okay. I'm just not interested. That's not good for me because I value my wife. I value my kids. That's my long-term investment. So the dudes I'm hanging out with, they're challenging me by, by the fact that they're great husbands and great dads. Yeah. Example. See what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think with, with respect to the values, you, uh, yes, we, we, we often look at, at whether it's a mentor or a, or a peer, we, we can put someone on a pedestal because, yeah, they might have values. They may not always live up to those values, and, and that's okay. We're all, we're all sure. human beings. But what you want overlap in is you look at, like Ryan and I, in our first book, we wrote about the, the five sort of foundational values, health, relationships, creativity, uh, uh personal improvement and giving or contribution and and those those sort of five areas are like ryan and i have different political beliefs and that's okay yeah it's actually kind of cool it's helpful (laughs) right it makes for fun conversations if you can handle if you're mature enough what allows us to challenge because like you said if you just put a hula hoop around us we had all the same exact (laughs) beliefs how would we really challenge each other? Well, there's then? no iron sharpening iron. What happens when iron hits iron? Mm. What happens? It gets sharp. No? 
Well, th- that's the result. But what right. is the physical response when iron clashes with iron? Sparks. Sparks. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's not forget that. Yeah. What's happening there? Well, you're sparking perspective. You're sparking ideas. You're sparking, huh, never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Um, be okay that you're not going to change overnight hanging out with somebody who 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 disagrees with you politically. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to, they're not going to infect you. <laughs> you know? It's not a communicable disease, you know? It's just a different perspective, which, by the way, might just actually sharpen your own and make you stronger on your own. But hey, it's pretty darn awesome to be able to sit with somebody and go, man, I love this dude. Boy, I do not, I did not understand where he was coming from. I don't agree with him, but now I understand where he's coming from. What yeah. happens there? Well, now all of a sudden I get, I, I start to feel more confident and I feel much more safe, not vulnerable talking with people who are different than me. I like the the spark analogy because yeah. uh, the sparks are important. Well, and to continue the analogy, what what doesn't happen is you don't set the relationship on fire. There are sparks, mm. right? But it, it it's not just a conflagration, right? Where you you come in and like I'm going to burn down all of your ideas right. because I disagree with you. Right. That that that's not going to make for an empowering relationship either. Uh, you also talk about the five places yeah. on on the journey, and and places aren't are necessarily geographic here. Although you talk about that. Uh, about about geography, but also you talk about starting in in your zip code. But can we just run through the five places yeah. really quick? Well, the the uh, place where you are is the first place in the book because that's the place most people overlook. I'd love to dive into that, but but I'll, I'll keep going. So the where you are. So this is the idea of most people think you got to move somewhere to go somewhere in your career, and that's just nonsense. We all have to start somewhere, and starting small is actually the right way to do it. It's not yeah. something to look down on. So uh, and, we, and I think what's important though about this is, you know, like when Ryan and I first started the minimalists.com, we did so with $7 basically. I mean, it costs that much to, to <laughs> register the minimalists.com, right. <laughs> but we didn't say, all right, well, we need to get office space. We need, yeah, let's go move to Los Angeles right, right now. Yeah. I need an administrative exactly. assistant. Right. And uh, no, it, we, we started, it was me and him. We, we had a blog and, and we started writing some words on, on to this blog. And from there it, it built, we started in Dayton, Ohio, in our zip code, yes. working out of the local coffee shop, yeah. and and building from there. And in many ways, it's sort of proof of concept. If you can't 100%. if you can't do it on the local scale, then when it does come time for you to to move, you're not going to be able to do it there either. Yeah. I think that's actually wonderful. Well, you know, we'll stay here since you set me up, and I'll follow you. I promise. I'll be really quick. The law of the zip code is what these guys did, folks. The law of the zip code says. Everything I need to get started is already around me. So if you can't do it in Dayton, you can't do it in L.A. I got a newsflash for you, okay? Yeah. That's just a fact. And so the idea here is um, I want you to begin to look in your own zip code is what I'm writing about in the book. And I, I have some very practical steps we unveil there of how to just get started. Just right there. Like, stop looking out. Uh, stop looking at the top of the mountain. We know where we want to get to. But you don't climb the mountain by just looking at it and going, here we go. Right. Like that doesn't happen. We got to go learn. What is it going to take to get up the mountain? Physically, where do I need to be? What are the tools and equipment I need? Who's going to be my guide? Come mm. on, folks. Let's think about this stuff. So so that's the that's the place where you are then uh, after we get started with this idea of what's around me. So the place where you are is, is an act of, okay, what can I do to get going? And that leads to the second place, which is a place to learn. Mm. Look, folks, if you aren't where you want to be, that we start with 
asking the question, what do I need to learn and do Mm -hmm. to get qualified, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to get into a place to learn. In my example, I unveil it in the book. This was taken a broadcasting, a six-week broadcasting school with a local TV producer. And I'm in the class with a bunch of 21, 22-year-olds. I'm 32. It was two weeks in before they realized I wasn't an instructor and stopped calling me sir. You know, and I had to put my place, I had to swallow my pride here. And I had to go learn the basics of broadcasting. And that was a very affordable and small time commitment, but to this day, I look back on that broadcasting school as just bedrock activity for me. So that's a place to learn. All right, now we move to the third place, and that is a place to practice. Mm. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but what do I mean by a place to practice? We're talking about low risk here. All right, low risk. We're not doing this for a living. It doesn't have to generate the bills. It, it's just I'm going to get out there. So that's the volunteering, the interning, or you know, doing something just part time. But it's just it's just low risk. We're not looking to pay the bills here. We're going to get in and just start to get cuts at the plate using mm-hmm. a baseball analogy. This is batting practice. I'm just in there hitting pitches. All right. Now, that moves and, us and to, there's very little expect. The nice thing about that is very little expectation with low that. expectation, which is huge for us as humans. Yeah. Let's take the pressure off. My gosh. You know, I would never let you or anybody else listen to my first radio show <laughs> back in Atlanta, you know. It was abysmal compared to what I'm doing now, right? And I certainly hope that five years from now, I'm way better than I am today. Uh, and, 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 and so we, we just have to learn. Now, uh, excuse me, we got to practice. So now the next place is a place to perform. Now this is, now, now it's for real. So this is what I would call, for example, purposes, entry level. So I'm in the field, right? It's not the dream job. I'm at the bottom of the ladder, but thank God I'm on the ladder, right? I'm on the bottom rung. Hands are on the side, feet are on the bottom rung. Woohoo! I'm in. And this is a place to perform. So now pressure's on because we're doing this for a living, right? right? And this is where we've got to absolutely know our role, accept our role, maximize our role. And so now we're beginning to go. And then finally that leads to um, a, a place to grow. And, mm-hmm. and this is um, differentiated from I'm on the bottom rung of the ladder. It's like the call we took from Melissa, right? Melissa's not in a place to grow, most likely. And so she needs to find a place that is known for developing their people and promoting their people. And those are great cultures, great companies. They're moving people from administrative assistants up to leadership positions, VPs, things like that. And so that's a place to grow where I can get in. It's in the field. The dream job might be in that company. Mm -hmm. And I see a ladder. It's very clear. If I do what I'm supposed to do, I pay my dues, I can get there. So those are the five places. The, the, um, The place to perform you have a story about Kara the animator in, mm. in your book. Mm-hmm. And what I liked is sometimes we get we get so overwhelmed by that place to perform because there are endless options. It, but you, you really simplified it. You said there were three things she focused on when she was performing, eating, sleeping, and animating. That's right. It, it wasn't and updating her Facebook status. That's and, right. And it was, no, I'm going, uh, I'm going to get better at what I'm doing here. This is going to be my, my opportunity to, to perform or, or to even practice. I mean, there's obviously overlap with any of, these, right. any of these steps, right? And so when you have someone like Kara, it's like, how do I simplify this? Well, I'm focused on 
eating, sleeping, and animating. I'm actually focused on doing the work that's going to make me better, that's going to improve my skills, not overcomplicating it with, I need to add all these other things in. When Ryan and I first started in Dayton, Ohio, it wasn't, well, we need to work on a documentary, we need to have a podcast. That's I right. didn't even know what podcasts were at the right. time. That's right. Yeah, we need to write four books, we need to uh, uh, we, uh, let's reach out to Netflix, we need to do documentaries, and, and oh, we need to start touring. No, it was just like, hey, let's do this blog thing and just see what happens right and and we can build upon that and by the way as you get better at that then it does open up some new opportunities yeah. and new directions for you to move in yeah the reason i shared that story and those three things is because the human nature is is really uh naturally focused on the next we're creatures of progress so this is okay it's okay but we don't want it to be unhealthy and here's what happens though um if you're not focused on the now and you're obsessed with the next you'll actually sacrifice the next. Mm. So in this situation, her- And simultaneously sacrifice the now. Well, you'll, you, that's my point. There, there'll be no progress. You're, you know, if you, the, immediate, the, the immediate thing is the immediate thing. That's the thing. Yeah. You get a chance to animate. Don't start thinking about becoming the lead designer at Pixar. No, you're an animator. There is no next if you don't win in the now. So when we obsess about the next- we ultimately can sacrifice the next because we're not thinking about what do I need to do in the now? Who do I need to learn from in the now? Who do I need to follow in the now? You know, all these things. It's the now which gives us the next. And so that's the idea there. I'm being oversimplified in what she did, but that's really the truth there. And so, you know, you need to focus on, uh, hey, uh, I'm eating properly. I'm sleeping. I'm loving my loved ones. But I can have an eye on the next, meaning here's where I'd love to go, mm -hmm. but I better be laser focused on being the best animator in that position, and that will always lead to the next, just by owning that moment and being the best you can be in the now. And that really ties in with what Ryan and I talk about with respect to just simplifying. I mean, so, so if you look at the, the Latin root of the word complex, it's complex, which yep. means to bind or inter, in, interweave two things, two or more things together. And that's what we do when, when we get overwhelmed by the, if she wants to be an animator, but then uh, maybe I need to get an agent and maybe I need yeah. to do this and that and the, the Pixar, yeah. but I don't know if Pixar is right for me. It's like, right. what are you even talking about? <laughs> you just need to start animating yeah. right now. Just draw the mouse. Right, right. <laughs> that, that's like, it. Just draw what you're supposed to draw, and then see if you can get better drawing that tomorrow. Right, right. We've got some questions here, Ryan. You want to start with Miller's question? Sure. Miller writes in. I don't know what I'm passionate about. Help. This makes me think of. Uh, I mean, I always point to Cal Newport when oh. I when I think of uh, people struggling with their passion. He wrote two really good books. Uh, one's called Deep Work, and the other one is called uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And uh, those came out in opposite order of what I just listed them. Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Cal, Cal talks about how, you know, following your passion, like that is, it's bad advice because we, we, we assume that there's this one thing that's supposed to just like spark this excitement and that we go to bed excited and then we wake up and we think about that thing and we wake and it sparks more excitement and then we're just getting excitement sparked throughout the whole day. That, it, that there might be someone out there who has had that happen to them, but I can certainly say like, I love what I do. Josh, I know he loves what he does. We put a lot of work into what we do and it's cultivating something that we do have an appreciation for. It's something that we do love, but there's a lot of work that goes into cultivating that passion. Yeah. And the beautiful thing too is like, you know, I love to snowboard. 
I love to uh, mountain bike. I love to longboard. There are so many things that I can uh, cultivate that I can put my time and effort into. So, you know, I think for, for my advice for Miller here would be, you know, find that, find something that interests you and start putting effort towards that. Don't, don't, don't look in the mirror and be like, all right, Miller, what is your passion? You've got to come up with this one thing that you're just going to be. And now you're stuck with it for the rest of your life yeah, as well. Right. So can you, you have people come to you and say, Hey, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me give quick context and then I'm going to tell Miller how he can actually figure this out. So I appreciate Cal's work. I've interviewed Cal and Cal's right when he says, and there are other people that say, don't follow your passion, but they're not giving you the rest of the sentence. Mm. Uh, So I teach on talent and passion every day. They must intersect and they must both equally be at play. Mm. So for instance, don't be the kid on American Idol who you have an empty passion to be famous mm. but you can't sing okay that's what cal's talking about and other people yeah. said that's what they're really talking about absolutely but they're throwing a little bit out uh and so i with all due respect i want to teach this because you've got to understand passion is huge mm-hmm. it's not enough on its own it's marrying what you do best raw talent think of a think of a bunch of clay just a lump of clay right now i don't know if you've ever seen a potter actually take a lump of clay and put it on the wheel and do it it's fascinating stuff this is what I teach. We take the raw talent, meaning everybody's born with some things you're good at, multiple things, but there's a, there's a handful of things you do better than anything else. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Identify that. Because Miller's got to look at that first because within what he does best are the clues to what he would love to do most. Absolutely. So I always start there with my caller. Well, let's just look at what you do best. And human beings don't like to do things we suck at unless it's golf it's one of the few things uh i love golf but it's about camaraderie the cigar on the back nine a little bit of bourbon and every once in a while i hit a good shot and oh by the way i'm in nature and it's gorgeous right but i largely suck but i keep doing it that's a hobby right yeah so that's not profession that's not purpose Mm -hmm. all right now then we look at the other side, which is passion. What do I mean by passion? Is this a fleeting, feel-good feeling? No, no, no. Mm. No, no, no. Oh, I love this. So if you look at the root word of passion, it means to struggle. Mm. That's where it comes from, the Greek. And so it means to struggle. So what does that mean? Well, what they meant was is if you're willing to struggle to be able to do this, if you're willing to struggle to be willing to see the results of the struggle, that's a passion. Yeah. That's meaning. That's significance. That's what we all long for. So so we look at that. So that's what I mean when I say passion. Like that the work, you look forward to the work because mm. you guys look forward to what you do. Do we have hard days? Absolutely. Stinkingly yeah. we do. But we look forward to it. Now, here's, here's the other part. When we're engaged in it, oh, I got the juice. Mm. I got the juice even Close when I'm day. sick. You turn the mic on for me, and I know I got callers on the other end that need clarity. It doesn't matter how I feel, guys. I got the juice. Yeah. Because it's not about me. Okay? Now, when the show's over, no matter how bad I feel or how tired I am or what's going on in my personal life or if it's been tough meetings in in the rest of the day, in those moments after the show and then when I lay my head down on the pillow at night, there's terrific meaning in the results of the work. All right. Now, that's there for everybody. So you use what you do best to perform the work that makes you come alive. Now, how do we figure out passion? Well, the first step is, as I told you, start to identify your talents. Really easy thing to do. Yeah. Stop thinking and start feeling. What have people always complimented you on? What subjects or little skills or things always just came easy to you? You saw other people struggle with it, but it was easy for you. Write that down. Take that list of some people in your life that are truth tellers. 
They're not going to make you feel good like the mom on American Idol who told her kid her whole his whole life, oh. baby, you sing so good, and the kid sucked, and it took him embarrassing himself on national TV for this poor kid to get some truth in his life. So please mm. don't be that person. Go to people in your life who know you well and will tell you the truth. All right, so then we get clarity on what we do well. Then uh, answer, and, be, and be willing to accept the truth. Well, yeah. Yeah, by the way, that's the whole point. You need to see you as the world sees you, so put some mirrors in your life. Now, how do you dive into the passion thing? Well, we've got the clues on what we're good at. So then you answer these three basic questions, all right? It's a psychological exercise. I'm rewording the same question three times. First one is, who do I most want to help? And just think about that. Mm -hmm. Put a face on them. Think about them. Who are they? Who do you most want to help? Second question, what problem do you most want to solve? Go back to that first question. What are the problems that those people I was thinking about have? I mean, get specific. Mm -hmm. Are they single moms who are struggling financially in public housing and they, they don't feel they have a way out? Why? Why do you have that? And when I ask callers that, it's always personal. Well, my mom was a single mom and I watched my mom struggle. Yeah. Oh. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Now the heart's revealing true passion, the why. All right, then the third question is, what solution do you most want to provide? Uh, again, this is more of a, it's a little different take, but it's like I get jazzed about this solution. I love creating apps that make people's lives easier. Fantastic. That's great. That's a worthy cause. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, great. That's, if I could do that all day, every day, program apps that make people's lives better, Oh, man, that's incredible. So let's not overthink this passion question. Answer those three questions. And by the way, I recommend a pencil and a piece of paper. Here's why. It will clarify your brain. When you take it from the brain and you write it down, we know from psychological studies that the brain begins to see those things. The brain takes pictures of what we think about. Mm -hmm. This is a real thing. Go look this up. This is neuroscience. And so whatever thoughts we focus on, the brain then becomes like this RoboCop roving camera that begins to look for the things that are verifying our thoughts. It's true. Let me give you an example, psychological uh, study on this. We've all bought a car at some point in our life, or we were with our mom and dad when they bought a car. Yep. And we all went to the lot, and we got all excited about the car. We're all focused on that car. Big deal. We get in the car, and on our way home, we see that car 17 times. Mm -hmm. And the next day, we see it. 25 times and at some point all of us think or say to each other seeing this car everywhere i didn't see it last week it's crazy how many people have this car why focus mm. whatever our brain focuses on okay whatever thought sorry so this is a this is the power of thought whatever we think about our brain then and goes and looks for that thought and will go find things that we never even saw so so this is powerful step back on this so when you truly begin to Answer those three questions. Who do I most want to help? What problem do I most want to solve? What solution do I most want to provide? It might start at 50,000 feet. Then we wake up the next day and we look at it again and we get that old eraser out, right? We don't have to worry about an ugly page. And we rewrite it. And the next day and the next day and the next day. And before you know it, it's gone from 50,000 feet to it's right in front of me and I never saw it before. And uh, this is not mumbo jumbo, folks. This is what I tell my callers every day and it works. And we've got the emails and the social media posts and it worked for me. So if you're trying to figure out that sweet spot, the intersection of what you'll do best and what you love to do most, those are the things that you have to do. Get very clear on what you do best. And now these are the tools we can use to answer 
How do I do this over here? Well, I happen to be really empathetic and I'm just a great listener and I'm a pretty good communicator. Okay, great. Let's write those down. Then let's go over here. Um, well, it turns out that I'm, I'm really passionate about helping children. Okay. What children? What are the problems? Well, you know, they, they've had abuse. Oh, okay. Why is that? Well, I was abused. Mm. Oh, okay. See, from great pain comes tremendous passion. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. We, we have lots of clues is my point. I just I just gave you the whole process it, really well, the, quick. Yeah, that process is, that's how you cultivate a passion. Like that is, yeah. I, I think those are the steps and I've never heard it explained so well, man. That was perfect. Well, it's pretty simple too. <clears throat> and the other thing too is like what I was just, you know, kind of reworking in my head here with Cal's, with Cal's take on it is passion is not the beginning. No. Like passion is the end result. And, and going back to what you first said about where, you know, it comes from uh, the Greek word to mean, which means to struggle. Yeah. Like the passion comes from yeah. the struggle, yeah. the passion, the, 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 the focusing on the passion that might drive the motivation. It's the fuel. Yes. So it, look at passion as the fuel for achieving yeah. your purpose. But not, but not the, yes, but not the. Uh, it's not a destination. Right, yeah. Not the end all be all. No. Yeah. Nikki is asking us, is it possible to change careers without going back to square one, i.e. entry level position and pay? Well, so, anything's possible. Sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> and although here's what, here's what I'll say, here's what I'll posit to Nikki is maybe maybe in your situation, it might be the best thing to go back to square one. Ryan and I, when we walked away from the corporate world, I, I managed 150 retail stores and I left to be a writer on a, you know, a blog and eventually books. And uh, as Ryan mentioned earlier, I made $23,000 that year. It wasn't exactly prestigious, right? Yeah. Uh, but I started over at square one, but that was the cost of pivoting 180 degrees in a different That's direction right. that aligned with my talents, that aligned with my passions. Man, I would rather be lost and happy at square one rather than miserable at square whatever. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's the, yeah, that was my biggest driver for when I got laid off. I mean, I literally, I was, I was going to quit eventually. But I had planned so much to take that step back that when, you know, they called me to the conference room and, you know, my boss was there, my boss's boss was there, the lady was from HR. I was just like, this is the best freaking thing that could have yeah. happened to me. Like, yeah. this is exactly what I needed. Yeah. Here's the only thing I'll say to this. The question was, is it possible? And from a macro point of view, sure, it's possible. But to both of your stories, it depends on your journey. I can mm -hmm. just tell you from my journey. Depends what square one is. So I'd like to clarify square one for the audience. Square one for me was, sure, I had to start from scratch and start doing high school football play-by-play -play on the internet. Mm -hmm. Two people listened to the first live broadcast, the kid next to me and my wife, because she's a good woman. That was square <laughs> one, but I did not start over square one financially. I kept my day job. So I learned and did, and all the things I write about in the book while running my own small business, I didn't run it great, but I wasn't trying to run it great. Mm. That was a means to an end, and I shut it down the moment I could shut it down. Yeah. But I kept it going. So what do we mean when we say square one? I suspect her question is financial in nature. Yeah. And so to that, I would say, no, ma'am, you do not have to start at square one. In fact, I'd say that's just nuts. Yeah, It's not necessary. You can learn what you need to learn, do what you need to do, read the proximity principle, 
email me, I'll give it to you. Because if you do that, you can stay in the day job and then eventually step into the dream job and never go backwards financially, certainly not significantly. Right. I mean, yeah, when Josh and I started uh, theminimalists.com, we were both working in the corporate world. Um, I was going to college at the time. Yeah. And there were some really, really long weeks. I mean, not just, I mean, my job was 60, 70, 80 hours a week alone. Add it, you know, add to it uh, uh, writing for the minimalists and going to school. I knew it wasn't sustainable, but I knew where the work was getting me, although I wish I would have quit college <laughs> back then. Well, Amen for me, to that, man. college was, uh, it was, for me at the time, I kept talking myself into it because A, I didn't have long left. I didn't have a long time left to go. And B, I wanted to give an example to my family who none of them sure. have a four-year sure. degree. Um, but but hindsight, uh, it wasn't, it, my example did nothing for them <laughs> and the degree has done nothing for me. But my, my point is, is that yes, uh, you can absolutely grow into something else, look for something else without having to quit your day job and, and yeah. yeah, live off of 20,000 bucks a year. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Harsha. How different is it to be a freelancer than to have a typical career? What are the important things to keep in mind while freelancing? So it's a little bit different than, than going out and looking for mm-hmm. your own career, but I assume there are there's a whole lot of overlap still. There is the one distinction. If I'm if I'm listening to the question correctly, uh, freelancing is a different game. Yes, and it's different because you are not just doing the work; you are also your number one salesperson. Mm-hmm. So you know when you are working for the man, right, or the company, um, you, you've got you know guaranteed work to the extent that Mm -hmm. as long as you do a good job and they don't go through financial problems when you're completely freelancing there is a component there that you know you've got to keep clients coming in the door yeah uh so you know the first decision that goes is the freelance right you know when a company has to cut costs so it's not terribly different the proximity principle still works in fact it's more valuable to the freelancer because your currency is relationships and connections so that we get work coming in whereas let's just say you're a freelance graphic designer let's just use that as an example here Mm -hmm. the graphic designer working for ramsey solutions right now he's not thinking about his work tomorrow Mm -hmm. he shows up he knows what his project is you know it's in some ways the company's responsibility to tell him what he's doing next if you're a freelance graphic designer well you know hey uh you better stay in front of people you know because people aren't just going to call you Right, because yeah. you're out there, so it is a different game, and you got to have the the internal intestines for that game, because it's very different than just being a graphic designer. You are your own company. Yeah, I, I think like I mean, going with the graphic designer uh, uh, example, if you want to be a freelance graphic designer, you can't just all of a sudden put an ag in Craigslist. I am right. I am a I am a freelance graphic designer right. and expect people to come to you. The going back uh towards what we keep talking about this whole episode uh and what we talked about in the in the uh short episode in the minimalist episode was contribute. Like find find someone that you can contribute towards and you might have to do some free freelancing exactly work exactly right. just to get your name out there. Um and, and then things tra- you know uh, your Name will travel by word of mouth. Your reputation will get around. And if you do good work, like eventually someone will pay you for your good work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is very similar to kind of what, I mean, we don't freelance, but we did start our own business. We're entrepreneurs, Josh and I. And uh, for that first year of the minimalist.com, we didn't sell anything. Yeah. 
I mean, we were just putting our, our thoughts yeah. down and we were putting all our efforts into getting this, this uh, message to getting our story out there. And eventually people were like, you should write a book. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, I guess we should write a book. Right, huh? right. Yeah, if you go out of your way to add value to people's lives, I mean, that, that's the only thing I'm going to tell a freelancer is how can I add value to other people's lives as a freelancer? You figure that out and, and eventually they're going to be bending over backwards to yeah. to take advantage of your product or service. One thing I'd point out here uh, for advice for all freelancers is if to the extent that you can do it on the side and it's not a conflict of interest with your current work, so if it's not a conflict of interest, integrity first, uh, and if you have the hours, depending on your family life and what's going on there, uh, then I would do it on the side. I would keep the day job, yeah. grow the freelancing business to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, I've actually got something here. And so what does that look like? I want to be super practical here. I would love freelancers to stay in the day job, launch the freelancing business on the side, bank all of the money that you make and you do not leave your day job until you have a minimum of six months of your current salary in the bank. I'd prefer 12. Mm. Plus now you're going to have an on-ramp as well. Because you got real clients. Yeah. yeah. And they're wanting more of you. They're telling you more. I'd like you to get to a place where you even have to hire a couple of other graphic designers and you manage their work so you can bill their hours. You're not making as much, but you're making more. And let's wait till we get 12 months, a year in the bank, because then you're going to have the clientele and you're going to have real cash. And then I'd like you to step away, but don't do it until then. And I know that that's painstaking for some people to hear that. I want, I want it right the, now. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> Great. You're going to have really skinny kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The, uh, the next question is kind of along the uh, same line here, Pat, how can I pursue my dream job if it involves taking a pay cut? I mean, well, that, I mean, here's the thing. So, so sometimes you might have a dream job that is not going to pay you as much as your current job. Maybe you are an attorney and you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year, but your dream job is to be a kindergarten teacher. Well, I had a call like that. Tell me I about had, it. Well, I had a call. A guy called in and he had been a VP of sales and he was 52 years of age. And he's like, Ken, I've been listening to your show for several weeks and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I want to be, you ready for this, an athletic director and a coach on the middle school, high school level. That's what I've always wanted mm. to do and I've made plenty of money. Uh, it will certainly be a cutback. You know, I mean, I've got decent retirement. He's not, he's not just totally loaded, mm. but he's been successful enough. And he said, I just got a question. Is that insane? And I walked him through everything and I said, no, it's not insane because mm. you're going to be miserable and you're 52. Uh, you've got 10 years, man, where you can be an athletic director and a coach. And he goes, okay, I just want to, because all my friends are telling me I'm nuts. Mm. Well, of course they are. Because right, they see how much money he could make 10 years from now and how fat that retirement account would be. Guess what? He said, I'm willing to make the sacrifices to change our lifestyle. Man, if you let money dictate your career, oh, you're going to be miserable. It, yes, that is a perfect recipe for misery. Yeah, and it needs to be an ingredient in the recipe. We sure. Can't, we can't kid ourselves Absolutely. to say, well, no, money doesn't mean anything to me whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not true either. It's part of the equation. It's not the. Right. It's, it can't be the driving factor. The exactly. point is, he was willing to sell his house, huge equity in it, do all the things, and he was fine making sixty-five thousand dollars a year after being a six-figure earner. Yeah. Downsize yeah. if you're willing. Yeah, I guess ultimately we're asking, like, what are your what are your dreams worth to that's you, right? Yeah. And and then the opportunity cost of not pursuing your dream is discontent you know you're gonna have all all of these you, you're gonna have a lot of regret looking back in the rear view if you're like well I, I i needed to stay in this safe position i needed to stay comfortable and oh by the way i was afraid of my 
my peers mm-hmm. judging me. That's right. Uh, it might mean it might mean finding some new peers along the way. Well, let me just be real. It took me seven and a half years to step into Ramsey Solutions, and then another three years of service to get the dream job of the Ken Coleman Show nationally. I just want people to hear that. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that your journey is going to be nine and a half, ten years. But what I'm saying is, is that if I walk out on the street and I just talk to people with a camera and I go, hey, if I told you that you had to do step one, two, three, four, and five, and at the end of those steps, you were going to step into your dream job, would you do whatever it takes? Nine out of 10 people are going to go, oh, absolutely, you betcha. They would say yes. Of course they'd say yes. Yeah. But if I said, well, but what if I told you it was going to take many years, Hmm. right? More than two years. Hmm. Let's just throw that in there. Are you willing to wait as long as it takes? Now, that's a totally different deal. Yeah. So let's show the flip side to this question. If the question is, you know, do I have to go backwards financially uh, to step into the dream job? Maybe a little bit, but not necessarily because I did it all on the side. I did it all on the side. So again, it goes back to uh, there's three basic questions when you look at, okay, what does the plan need to look like to, to, to get to the dream job? And I always love to give simple questions because it just frees the mind. So here we go. What do I need to learn to learn and do? What do I need to learn to do to mm-hmm. get qualified for the dream? Second thing is, how much is that going to cost me mm. financially? And then based on that answer and my current financial situation, how long do I think that's going to take? Now, this is a game changer for humans when we can actually remember we're, we're, we're terrified of the unknown. So those three simple questions will answer this man's question because he can give himself his own answers. Then he goes, oh, all right. Well, it's, it's, it's going to take uh, 18 months to go get this degree. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost me an additional $25,000. i am in debt right now. It's going to take me three years to get out of debt. And then probably another three years to save up that money. So it's six years, another eight years. Am I willing to? Am I willing to wait eight years? Yeah, that's yeah. those are powerful questions. It gives you a roadmap, and you've got to decide whether or not you want to follow. That's it. right. Yeah, and figuring out what what that type of freedom is worth to you. I mean, it's ultimately priceless, and I think we we understand that at least intellectually. But when you start to understand it emotionally, viscerally, oh, the freedom so of, of of living that dream job that takes. A lot of hard work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. The thing I tell my writing students is, we were talking about the passion thing earlier, you have to drudge through the drudgery. Mm -hmm. That's where the real passion is. There there are times, even when I'm writing now, I write every day, but but there are times where I want to put my head through a wall. Mm -hmm. But the payoff, when you get to the other side of that, when it starts working or you start to get that flow state, the power of the now and and, and being in, in the moment, Man, there's nothing better. There's no better payoff. Yep. Uh, even when the book comes out, it's it's the the payoff is actually in the moment when you're actually so, creating it. What do you think about people that do these long distance these 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 marathoners or uh, uh, CrossFit? Anybody listening right now? You're not where you want to be in your career, but you're one of these workout freaks that I'm jealous of, and quite <laughs> frankly, can't stand because I just don't have it in me to do all that. Um, the same euphoric feeling that you experience in a, in a competition or when you cross the finish line and get a personal record or yeah. you finish that triathlon. That's what you and you and I and all the other men and women in this world that are doing what they love, that's what we're experiencing every day. It was worth every freaking second of the 10 years for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing too, I think about if Josh and I ever went back 
to making 23,000 bucks a year, like, you know, the rug was just swept out from underneath of us, I'd still do this work. I wouldn't be able to live in Los Angeles. No, no, that's the answer. Because it's super expensive to live here. Right. But I could still find a way to live off of 23,000 bucks a year. And by the way, if it took 35,000 for me to really have, you know, a, to provide me with the things I needed, health insurance and saving for retirement, keeping the lights on, keeping food on the table, taking care of my family. Like that's okay too. I could find a way to earn that extra 12,000 bucks. I could drive for Uber. I could deliver pizzas. I mean, there are, there are ways to fill that gap. If you absolutely have your dream job, you can, you, yes, you can absolutely take a pay cut if yeah. it's your dream job and you can find ways to fill the, the gap that you're missing. We got a question here from Carissa. How can I change jobs without see, without seeming disloyal or ungrateful? Isn't that funny how we, we often stick around? We stay, and this happens not just with careers, but with relationships, with partnerships, with businesses, like uh, friendships, whatever it may be. I don't want to seem ungrateful yeah. or disloyal. But, I mean, I think your job doesn't want you to stay if you are no longer a valuable contributor. The same with a, with a relationship. If you're, you're, if you're in a friendship with someone or a business partnership with someone and you're, you're, you're staying because, well, I don't know what they'd do without me, there's a certain amount of hubris there as well. Mm. I'm going to tell you what I think simply is at the source of this question. We get this question a lot on the show, so I love this question. This is all psychological. This is because we as human beings don't like conflict. And we usually think of the word conflict as a result of an argument, right? We think conflict means argument. No, true conflict, this idea of the tension and anxiety about saying something that someone else doesn't want to hear. That's what I call conflict, mm. okay? Just, it's uncomfortable for me to have this conversation. Right. That's what's going on at this question. Mm -hmm. And so what she's saying is, how do I do it without them being mad at me? Uh, well, number one, uh, this isn't about loyalty. This is about you doing what's best for you. And by the way, if you're not supposed to be there and you don't want to be there, you're not doing the company any favors. Yeah. You're half checked in anyway, yeah. to your point. Second thing is, your, your, your responsibility is to, is to do things the right way and let the chips fall where they fall. So go in, be classy. Don't give them five days notice. Give them minimum two weeks. Tell them how grateful for you for them that you are for the opportunity to do the work. Explain that you're not leaving because of them. You know, it's the old reverse. It's not you, it's me. Hey, yeah. I've got a better opportunity, and this is putting me further down the path that I believe that I'm supposed to walk on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sad to leave, uh, but I want to leave well. So how can I uh, best help you all in this transition? Can I help so, you? Can I help? Uh, Derek, yeah. Derek Sivers writes about this and yeah. anything you want. He, uh, he, he talks about how... Uh, with jobs he had, he would find his replacement yeah. and he would bring them to HR and say, hey, I found and trained yeah. my replacement already. Yeah. And uh, that way you, there's no gap for you. And yeah. I mean, that's going way above and beyond. But yeah. if you could do something like that, especially if you're feeling you know, the guilt or, or, you, or, or whatever you're feeling here, Carissa, it, you know, if you, you can show them your gratitude by saying, hey, I'm willing to train a replacement. I'm willing to yeah. help yeah. out in whatever way I can add value before yeah. it's time, my time to exit. Dude, She's Josh, just afraid of disappointing them. Yeah. So get over that. But Josh, that happened to you, man. When you handed the, the the recommendations he asked for, yeah, you know, he asked for layoffs, and your name was at the top of the list. So I, uh, this was 2010. Um, I, 
This was right before Christmas, the holiday shopping season. I, I was instructed I had to close eight stores, lay off 42 employees. And he said, you have two weeks to put together the plan, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we're going to lay off these people right after the holiday shopping season. And I said, okay. And I went home, and I started putting the numbers on the spreadsheets, right? Because that's what you do. You're like, I'm going to let the data speak for it, and we'll figure out who to lay off, what stores to close, et cetera. And I realized if you just look at the numbers on a spreadsheet, it's, look, it's like looking at a, a photo of a rainbow in grayscale. These aren't just names and numbers on a spreadsheet. These are dads. And, and, and moms and husbands and wives and, and friends and community members. These are human beings. Yeah. And it wasn't as simple as, oh, I just got to figure out which 42 performers I need to get rid of. Yeah, I mean, we, we, had, we had to do it. But I realized that, oh, this doesn't really align with my values anymore. And I had been distancing myself for a while, realizing like, oh, what we're doing right now doesn't align with the person I want to become. And so in, in 48 hours, I actually turned in the, uh, the list of 42 names. My name was the first name on the list. And my, my, my boss thought I was joking at first. Right. And then he said one of the most terrifying things that I've ever experienced. He said, I'm not going to let you quit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't know you could do yeah, that. Right. Well, wow. I can't quit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Indentured servitude. Yes. Uh, and so um, eventually, you know. But he we, was we, trying to guilt trip you almost. He, he was. It was like, oh, the, what are you going to do? You, uh, oh, you're right. going to be a writer? Really? What competitor are you going to? And it's right. like, no, no, no. Like, it, it, no one believed me at first either because it was like such a it was such a departure that you're going to be a writer as, as though I'm the first person to ever make a living from writing a book yeah, like, right. how crazy is that yeah. no one's ever done that right, before right, right. Uh, but I, I realized like I wanted to take a path that aligned with with my values and and it meant that I had to you know I had to walk away and and and, and I was yes I was changing jobs and and maybe I did seem disloyal to my boss right but my loyalty needed to lie with my future self. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And yeah. I wasn't doing anything to, you know, I wasn't trying to burn down the company or besmirch their reputation. I was simply trying to move on, to move forward. Yeah. 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 I will tell you this, if you are in a healthy environment and you go tell your leader the right way, like we described earlier, just be classy and uh, thankful and grateful and humble. Yeah. Uh, they're going to they're gonna be fine. Even if they're disappointed to lose you, they're going to be happy for you. Yeah. Uh, and if they're not and they react in any other way than that, then that's a great sign that you're making the right decision. Yeah. You know, and again, it's your life. It's not their life. And to your point, you're not an indentured servant. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, no doubt. Do I love this question from Daniel? How do you stand out from the rest of your peers without calling too much attention to yourself? Mm. <laughs> how, how do I... How, how do you drink water without getting hydrated? Uh, right. How do I, how do I stand <laughs> out? How do I fit in without standing out? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's there's something pithy there about yeah. about if you want to stand out, you can't fit in. I mean, th there is something about that. I mean, by definition, almost. Um, th there are different types of standing out, though, right? You mm -hmm. know, Ryan and I are from Dayton, Ohio. The, unfortunately, there was a very tragic shooting there uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, two blocks from. Uh, where I lived, and yeah, you know, massacre. That's a way to stand out. That's a way to get attention is through violence. Yeah. That's the wrong way to get attention. So you, you're you're really asking yourself here with someone like Daniel is what is the best way for me to draw attention on myself? And it's not attention on Daniel. It's attention on the work that Daniel is doing. Yeah, yeah I was going to say the same thing. My my quick response is 
and I see what he's asking. You don't have to say, hey, everybody, look at me. Right. Right. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. That's not the secret to standing out. Um, That's the secret to making a fool of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I I will go to a sports analogy. You know, Um, the football player that walks out on the field, that's super cocky and, you know, hey, look at me. With a $350,000 watch on. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to make a tackle or I'm going to do this. And we're just, we're saying, look at what I'm going to do. It's the guy that before the game is telling everybody and predicting. There's some athletes that can do that, Mm -hmm. right? But that's calling attention to yourself. Right. Versus just showing up and doing your job. Yeah. And doing it well. Right. And the person who shows up and does their job, they know their role. I write about this in the book. They know their role. They're very clear on what a win looks like. And this is advice for this young man, Daniel. Number two, they accept their role. Yeah. This is attitude. Mm-hmm. There is no next if I don't crush it in the now. I'm not better than this. This uh-uh. is where I'm supposed to be right now. That's it. Mm-hmm. This is my station. There's no other season or other station mm-hmm. unless I crush it here. And that's attitude. Then third, I'm going to maximize my role. That's effort. That's showing up early doing more than is expected of you, helping others when you're not expected to help, finding ideas, finding ways to add value to the team, to the mission. So know your role, accept your role, maximize your role. You do those three things and leaders will seek you out and promote you. You will not have to say, look at me, look at me. So good, they can't ignore you. Yeah, That's it, that's exactly it. And you might have some haters because you know it turns out when when you do really good work, like people are going to, well, they look at your building and they're like, his building or her building is so tall. I could either build a bigger building or I could tear theirs down. Yeah. And, and some people will try to tear you down. Yeah. But that is, that is the, that is the price of doing good work. Yeah. And, and, and to, to help with that, if you can learn the difference between feedback and criticism, those are two completely different things. Feedback yeah. is someone trying to help you, and criticism is someone trying to tear down your building. And when when someone is trying to tear down your building, you've got to be able to look at that criticism and just keep on moving forward. Remember this. When you run at a faster pace, you do those three things I just described. You're running at a faster pace. Your technique is better. You're going to outperform other people. And those people will take shots at you because you are a mirror. They are staring at your backside yep. and there's a mirror strapped to your back and they see where they are and they see where you are and they don't want to do what you're willing to do. And so instead of doing what you're willing to do, they're going to take shots at you with the hopes that you slow your pace down and join the pack. Mm. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Unless you're, I heard this a long time ago from an old Southern preacher. Unless you're the lead dog, the view never changes. Mm. And they get tired of staring at your backside because it's a reminder of how much better you're doing and you can't be listening to the pack. Yeah. Because again, uh, I don't want to run with the pack. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to be the guy in the middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. I want to be the guy running in my lane. Am yeah. I trying to win the gold medal? No, I'm not actually. Because that means I'm comparing myself to you guys mm. and on all the other men and women I get to run around with in this content thought leader world that I just get to be a part of. I'm not competing against them. Mm. I'm running my race in my lane. I got my personal record. I got my new challenges, but I got to stay in my lane. If that means I'm passing some people on the way, I really don't give a crap because I'm not looking at you when I pass you going, hey, look at me. Right. No, my head's down. My, 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 I, my finish line is my finish line. Yeah. So that's the mindset. Mm-hmm. None of that involves me going, hey, 
oh, I just passed you. No, 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 no. Just run your race, Daniel. Amen. We got one more here from Jonathan. How do you advance your career without overworking yourself? I know so many people who put in 60 to 70 hours a week and miss out on so much of what life has to offer. Dude, I was there. I mean, it's funny because in our corporate setting that Josh and I were in, if you took all of your vacation, you were viewed as lazy. That's right. And I mean, I just remember how many people would get lambasted over, oh, you know, it's, I got two weeks left of vacation left. I'm just going to go ahead and go on a two week vacation. I mean, they would get looked down on because that's, that environment is, it's not sustainable. It's toxic. There were 30 year olds having heart attacks in that environment. And I made the mistake of falling in line with the 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. But that was, that was my, I will never do that again. But that was my fault of kind of falling in line and showing that that was the best way that I could add value to the company was working 80 hours a week. I think, you know, with Jonathan, there are other ways that you can show value to your company and to the corporation that you work for without working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. That's really what your company wants is they want you to add as much value as possible. When Josh went to his boss before he laid himself off, he went to his boss and he's like, look, man, uh, I'm not going to answer your phone calls a- after a certain time. Yeah. And I'm not going to look at my phone before a certain time. And I'm still going to show up and do do work for you. And I'm going to do the best job that I can, but I've got to set some boundaries up. And guess what? Josh was adding so much value to our company that, I mean, there was a little bit of pushback, but ultimately Josh was able to set up those boundaries. So there are other ways to add value besides working 70, 80 hours a week. It's crazy. I think we often confuse the amount of time that we put into something with the amount of value it's actually going to produce. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with working 60 or 70 hours a week, as long as you're not forsaking your values. If if your values are your family and your personal relationships, or your values are your community, whatever your values are, your health should certainly be a value. And if you're working 80 hours a week at the detriment of all your other values, then obviously you're headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. You're very nice. You're a nice person. Um, I do not believe that any human being should be working 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, the data shows, there's lots of data out there. You can go research and check me on this. There's, there's, there's all kinds of data that shows that working crazy hours like that does not actually create a more efficient worker or more results. Mm. It's actually detrimental. Uh, so even if you're the single guy or gal that doesn't want a relationship, you don't want to have friends. So create this absurd situation uh-huh. to where 60 to 70 hours a week would be okay in your mind. It's not okay. So the data doesn't prove that it actually does anything to grow companies or makes you more effective. Number two, you are not a one-dimensional human being. Human beings were, recre- were created for relationship. Mm-hmm. We are relational human beings. I won't argue with you for a second about that because it's undeniable. We are relational people. So you're not one-dimensional. I don't care who you love, where you love them, how you love them. You still desire relationships. You're not one-dimensional. This is certainly the case for someone who's in a marriage or has children, and you will regret, you will get to the end of your life and be full of regret. And I don't want to regret, I want to reminisce. Mm. That's what I want. Number three, and, 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 and I'll just tell you this right now, um, efficiency is what it's about. 
in our world, except for our work hours, we always extol the virtues of efficiency, right? We think, oh, I want to build a product that creates more efficiency. We, we, we know the phrase. We want to work smarter, not harder. harder, right? So we all say all this stuff, and then we come to our, our own work life. We go, oh, my gosh, I put all these external pressures on ourselves and all these things. We go, well, I'm just going to have to work all these hours just so that I can hit my performance measures. Yeah, it's absurd. I remember back, totally back in the corporate world, I... I would generally be the first person in. The only person who would often beat me was our our boss, mm-hmm. and and so I felt like I had to be the first one in and last person out, even if there wasn't real productivity happening there. And and by the way, sometimes it would diminish the quality of the work because of the quantity of the work. Mm. And man, that becomes such a problem because we trick ourselves when everyone else's expectation is, well, you better you you better be working that many hours as opposed to well, what's what am I trying to produce here? And if it yeah. takes if it takes you two hours to produce a widget, but you spend t- 10 hours, you're probably actually going to end up with a worse widget. Okay, mm. I got to say this. So I'm reading this book right now uh, called Every Good Endeavor. And uh, it's fascinating. And it's, it's going down to like the core of work. And so if I might for just a moment, slightly romantic here, what is work? To me, work is the ultimate form of creation. Mm. Right? Yeah. I'm creating something through my energy. So it doesn't mean you have to be a creative, like to design something or interior decorator, but we are all creative. We are creative through the form of work. It is the truest art form. My energies are creating a result. Okay, so if that's the case, how can any human being at 60 to 70 hours a week still have the opportunity to truly recreate? What do we do on the weekends? What's the beauty of a weekend or a vacation or a sabbatical? What do we call it? Mm. Well, we call it recreation. Mm. Well, let's break down recreation. It means to recreate. What allows us to recreate? It is the act, the action of rest. The intentional changing gears, changing focus, and I'm going to recreate and refresh my head and my heart Mm. so that I can come back at it and create. You cannot continue to be the best creator that you could possibly be if there is not intentional rest. And I'm not talking about just sleep. However, go test me on all this stuff. I love people questioning me. Like, is he just saying this? (laughs) Is this just Ken's opinion? Yes, but it's informed. Go look at what we now know about sleep. Yeah. And high performance. Just go. Yeah. I've interviewed that. Go do your homework on this, folks. Mm -hmm. I'm not making this stuff up. And so it's not just rest. Sleep's a huge part of it. But it is also the ability to step away. The ability to uh, resign on Friday afternoon. Yeah. Sign back up on Monday morning. So that's that's the, the rest of that third piece there. I think it's total nonsense. I think it's you're building this up. And it's all about making yourself feel good. And uh, I think it's about efficiency and working 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week is not efficient. And then one last point while I'm preaching here, I'll just tell you this. A lot of the work hours we put in is because we want to try to have it all at once. Mm. And that's misguided and impossible. Mm. I saw a really cool little sign. 
this summer in a western North Carolina town called Brevard, where my mother-in-law and father-in-law live. And it's one of those cool southern artsy towns, you know, and mountains. And I saw this little sign hanging on the wall, and it said, you can have everything, just not at the same time. And I think you guys model this really well. When we embrace that there are seasons Mm -hmm. of life, we begin to savor the seasons. And I think there might be a season in 10 years where my youngest is in college or doing whatever she's doing, and I might pull a 50-hour week because I'm going really hard on a project that's going to take for a short amount of time a little extra effort. It's a sprint, though. It's a sprint. It's not a rhythm. And so uh, I think the the idea here is, is that if I'm going to savor my kids and savor the season of married and three kids in the house because it's going to be gone like that Mm. and I'm seeing it with an 11 and a 12 and a 13 year old and I can't even believe it they were babies yesterday I'm never going to get that back I turned down a meeting a really lucrative meeting that would lead to sales and advertisers for my national radio show this morning because they wanted the dinner to happen next Thursday night next Thursday night is my 12-year-old football game. Mm-hmm. I can meet those people another time. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, ah, sorry to get emotional. No, but, no, man. Like, that's, come on, you no, know? People need to understand that, Get man. your priorities right, yeah. you know? Like, I, I don't think my radio show is going to suffer for that. I may not get the deal as soon as I'd like it, but I'm never going to get that Thursday night back again. Right. And we have to consider those compromises because we're sometimes something, ah, it's just this once, but then just this once becomes just once a week. And then all of a sudden, before we know it, we've been subsumed by a life of compromises. We, we compromise our values in one area. They all start to be compromised. Can I, We'd like to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful, yeah, doing Thank work you. that matters. You're a beautiful human being, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. You guys are as well. Thank you. I, I want to encourage folks to check out The Proximity Principle. Uh, you can check out his show as well, The Ken Coleman Show. It's also a, a podcast as That's well, right. so they can download the podcast if you listen to podcasts, which hopefully you do if you're listening to this. And uh, follow him on social media as well, at Ken Coleman. And KenColeman.com is the hub for everything Ken Coleman. Ken, thank you so much for being here, brother. I enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much, patrons. We love you. Bye. The Minimalists.